Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. Mari's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, Geraldo, Montel, O'Reilly, and lots of other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit kuci.org slash privacypiracy. Good evening, Mari. Hey, good evening. We have a very interesting show, and I'm so thrilled that we actually have an Orange County VIP with us tonight. We don't often get a chance to have our experts from our own local area, and tonight we do. I think you remember a few, I think it was last summer, I read this great article in the Daily Journal, which is the legal newspaper for the state of California, and the name of the article was priests' privacy rights cannot override protection of children. And I looked down and I saw, oh, John Manley, a senior attorney right here in Newport Beach, California, and he specializes in representing victims of clergy sexual abuse. So tonight we're going to be interviewing John. Let me tell you a little bit more about his background. It's really impressive. He is the principal of Manley, McGuire, and Stewart, and he specializes in representing victims of sexual abuse by clergy. And he's become famous after representing many of the victims of sexual abuse by priests in the Catholic Church. Mr. Manley has appeared on numerous television news programs, including ABC Nighttime, CBS Evening News, Fox News, NBC Today Show, MSNBC, and many appearances on CNN. In addition, John Manley has also been featured in na- on national public radio and other radio outlets throughout the country. He's been featured in hundreds of newspaper interviews across the country as well, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, and many more. And he was named one of the top 100 California lawyers by the Los Angeles and San Francisco Daily Journal, and um, which is one of our, obviously, uh, leading legal newspapers. So thank you so much, John, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, this is really thrilling. We always enjoy having our local VIPs, so this is great. John, I understand that you have really been a real estate attorney, not a plaintiff's lawyer. So how did you get involved in these sexual abuse cases? Well, 10 years ago, uh, a young man named Ryan DeMaria and his family uh, came into my office, my former partner's office, and told us that... uh, Essentially, he'd been molested by a priest named Father Michael Harris. And uh, 
We ended up taking his case, and uh, at the end of, after a four-and-a-half-year legal battle, he settled his case for $5.2 million, wow. which is still the largest uh, single settlement in the history of the Catholic Church. And that young man is now an attorney with our firm. And, <laughs> Terrific. Uh, and went to Chapman Law School here in Orange County, lives in, in, lives in Newport Beach himself. Um, but, you know, and we still... Half of our practice is still devoted to representing real estate clients, but this thing uh, really took on a life of its own, and I never really thought I'd do another one of those cases, and at this point, we've done hundreds and hundreds of them, so um, it's become, whether I like it or not, I think a vocation as much as a, a career choice. Right, and and what really prompted you to take that case? I mean, you had that was not a specialty of yours since you were in real estate. I mean, what really got you to you, take that case? You know, um, I think that my partner initially took it in, and I looked up at her, and I still don't know the reason I asked this, and I said, is it Michael Harris, meaning is that the perpetrator? And she said yes, and Michael Harris uh, was my high school principal at Modern Day High School, oh. and uh, I knew him, but I also believed that uh, in my gut that he did it, and um, the story is is that the, we offered to settle the case with the diocese for something like $100,000, and uh, through their lawyers, they told us to pound sand. Hmm. And what I saw in that case is the way that the diocese and their lawyers, not just Orange, but all, Los Angeles as well, and other dioceses throughout the country, just basically tre- treated victims, and still today, to this day, treat victims like human debris. Hmm. You know what? That's just not the way I was taught by them, and that's not okay. Uh, and so, you know, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm half Irish, and it made me really mad. And uh, it's become, uh, you know, it, it's become a 10-year fight or crusade or whatever you want to call it to, uh, to get these folks justice. Let me ask you, John, when he was your principal at Modern Day, did you ever have any inkling or did you ever hear rumors about him no. nothing huh? the only thing that i ever that i ever remember when i was in school is i came to school one day and this is in the uh, late 70s and early 80s and someone had written father harris is a fag in spray paint all over the uh, the lockers and the it turns out years later i found out the boy that did that had been molested by father harris and in 2002 mm-hmm. and 2003 I represented guys I went to high school with and had been friends of mine at school that he was molesting while I knew them uh, at modern day, and I had no idea. Um, so, you know, the, the the lesson there is that, you know, Father Harris, to this day, and I, I deposed him within the last year in the recent cases against modern day, he is, you know, you meet him, and he is one of the most likable, affable, smart, articulate people you will ever meet. And the lesson there for parents is is that perpetrators are rarely the the guy in the trench coat skulking around the uh, elementary school. It's it's usually the the person who is the most affable, who is the nicest, and who is the most likable because that's what perpetrators have to do to get people to trust them. Oh my goodness! So they're charming, and they they charm the parents so that the parents trust them, and then they charm the kids to get them. Um, yeah, and yeah. Harris's specialty around the diocese was, quote, counseling adolescents. Oh, goodness. And uh, what he would do in these counseling sessions is is use them to access the, the child. And almost always it was a child who had 
personal problems, problems at home, problems with parents, etc. And um, they were the most vulnerable. But they were the most vulnerable. And it's it, you know the way you think about child molesters is child molesters are basically predators. And what predators do is they don't pick the strongest in the herd; they pick the weakest, right, and the most vulnerable. So you know it, it's easy to take down a, a you know a limping animal if you're a lion, and and effectively that's what they do. Now these these kids that were molested, did any of them like the ones that went to your high school? Did any of them really complain to anybody at the at the church no. or no. any of the, did they not their parents or anything? No, no nobody tells. Um, it, very rarely, the 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 great tragedy of Harris is that that there was evidence that they knew in the well. There's evidence that they knew as early as the late '60s when he was still a priest in the Archdiocese of L.A. But there's really strong evidence they knew in the late '70s. And and the first boy that came forward is a guy named David Price. And David's used his name and has given me permission to use his name. And David filed a lawsuit in 1995 against the diocese. And at the time David filed the lawsuit, the Diocese of Orange was in possession of a document from a Roman Catholic psychiatric facility that diagnosed Harris as being an aphibophile, which is somebody who molests post-pubescent adolescents, and effectively said he did it, don't let him around kids. And instead of disclosing that and saying it was true, they denied it. The bishop spokesman issued a statement calling him an icon to the priesthood and somebody who's profoundly spiritual. They let parents at Santa Margarita High School have, uh, you know, uh, rallies in support of him. There were balloons and said, I love Father Harris. Oh, and basically they ran over this poor kid. They took his deposition for 11 days. Uh, and finally he broke. And... Um, that's how they handle it. And it wasn't until De Maria and then later Boston that people really were willing to accept that this was really happening. Um, but the people who came for, forward early just got absolutely run over. Oh, um, my God. And the good news about David is David was able, we represented him again, sued him for fraud, and we were able to recover a significant amount of money for him. Right, the and, fact uh, that they hid this, that right. it was, and, yeah. And, and so he... Uh, He's living. He, he's gay. He lives with his partner in uh, in California, and they're 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 uh, doing really well. And he's he's just a great man. I, I have so much respect for him. What he must have gone through all those years and the humiliation of uh, what'd you say? Eleven days? eleven days of depositions with his lawyer, with Harris's lawyer walking up and down the uh, uh, the conference room, standing up, uh, cross examining him, and the judge, Judge Polis, who was a uh, Sitting Superior Court judge denied repeated motions to uh, uh, repeated motions to uh, to have that type of conduct suspended, and uh, nobody's ever asked Judge Polis why he did that. I'd be real curious, but that's what he did. That would be really interesting to reveal those uh, depositions. Of course, that well, would I've be got them if you yeah. want them. Yeah, the problem would be is that I mean the the privacy interests of this young man of David. Well, he's, too. he's he's willing to. I mean, he's gone on the radio to discuss it, and, you know, he thinks it's very important that people know what they did. Um, and so, like I said, he's told his story, and, um, you know, they... Uh, well, if David wants to come on our show, you know, we we never want to violate anybody's privacy. Oh, but if he, he, but if he probably wanted, will. Yeah, I mean, I would like to see those doubles and see the kinds of behavior. I mean, there must have been... Now, you... Were the 11 days of depositions, was that when you were representing No, I didn't represent him another lawyer. Oh, and, and what was the lawyer doing with all that? 
you know, the, the lawyer was doing his best, um, but I think my sense is is that uh, is there was a judge in control of that litigation who probably didn't believe that this happened. I see. Um, I'm not Judge Polis, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to speak for him, but I can only speculate that was the case. And, um, you know, the diocese, in fairness to everybody, was hiding the truth. And right. they, they knew damn well it had happened. They, do, they, they knew damn well what he was. And they just decided they were going to run him over. Because if they told the truth, you know, 20 or 30 people would come out of the woodwork, which is precisely what happened after the DeMaria case. Exactly. So. Now, when you got involved and, and your firm got involved and you obviously contacted them and said what's going on and you were trying to work things out, what were the reactions when, you know, because you, you were strong enough to, to come and help your clients. So what was the reaction um, when when you made these allegations? The first allegations? Yeah. Well, uh, my former partner's name is Kathy Freeberg, and, and we both, you know, made the allegations, and they basically didn't, they, they basically denied them. Um, they didn't basically, they did. Uh, Father Harris took the fifth until the statute of limitations expired. Uh, and then, um, you know, and then it was basically a fight to get material. And we got this document after a trip to the California Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, California Supreme Court, and they finally produced it. Um, but, you know... Which was not, a psychiatric thing. You mean that one? The psychiatric yeah. report. Which, yes. you know, and there are, interestingly, and on topic, their argument was that it's protected by the psychotherapist patient privilege, mm. which, as you know, and your audience may know, is something that, you know, psychological records have a... There's a tremendous... Uh, uh, Protection. Protection in the law for the privacy of those records because of the value of the therapeutic relationship. Right. Um, but it's not, you know, like all privileges, there's there's exemptions to it. And mm-hmm. uh, one of them is where there's a waiver. And what's interesting is the court in that instance did not did not balance the privacy interests of the victim versus the uh, therapeutic relationship. The report had been sent to the diocese. So, in effect, what the Supreme Court said and what the Court of Appeals said is, look, we don't have to get to the issue of whether they're private or not as a waiver because they were sent to a third party. Therefore, you get them. That's right. I mean, it, it, exactly right, that they were already disclosed to the diocese. Yep. And it was uh, the diocese who knew about it. And I think it's more the fact that they just, they're deceptive part of it, that they really hid it and they knew about it. Yeah, th- I think that's, you know, honestly, I think if, I think what makes people so angry is not that, not the abuse. The abuse is bad enough. What makes people so angry is the fact that they will not admit that they have any kind of culpability and that they, they are absolutely bound and determined to hide this, even to today. Right. So, I mean, if there was abuse and there were people who were acting outside of what they knew, and then they found out and they were outraged as well and fired them or you know didn't just transfer them from one church to another, then you could say, well, the church stood on its principles. But here they didn't. Yeah, not only did they not stand on their principles, they lied to the police, they lied to the people, they lied to families, and, you know, and they were in possession. Specifically, I'm speaking of Monsignor John Urell and uh, Bishop McFarland and others were in possession of all kinds of information on, on literally uh, dozens of priests and personnel who were working in this diocese during the 80s and 90s and even up till today, up till this decade. Uh, who they knew to be molesters. They were co-conspirators. Yeah, they were. And, in, you know, for example, I think that the figure is, and, and I, I wouldn't want to swear to this, but I think I'm right, 
the figure in 1983 is that over 20% or close to 20% of the priests in the Diocese of Orange were active molesters. 20%? Yeah. In some dioceses, it's well over that. um, But those are staggering numbers. Um, So... Uh, I mean, does that have anything to do with the fact that they can't marry? You know that they're they have they're supposedly celibate that they they that as priests they can't marry. Is that what? Well, I think that there's a it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I, what we've all concluded, and the person the 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 kind of the intellectual who's written the most on this is a man named Richard Sipe, who's a former priest and he's a psychologist. And Sipe's theory is is that it is not celibacy as much as the celibate system. And to be blunt, I don't know how many 35-year-old men uh, that you know that can, or I know, that can agree not to have sex, not to masturbate, not to think about sex, ever. Right. It, it's a system that that just is, is it defies uh, logic. I mean, men, are, men and human beings are not built that way. We are sexual beings, right. and um, when you suppress that natural drive, that's either God given or nature given or whoever you know your your God is, or or it's evolutionary, but it's there. When you suppress that and put a cap on it, basically it comes out sideways. And, yeah, insidiously. And, and so, yeah. what you and what you have within the priesthood is a massive. Uh, non-compliance with it. So everybody's either uh, masturbating compulsively, having uh, sexual relationships either committed or, or otherwise with adults, men or women, or they're engaging in relationships with minors. And, and the good news is is the majority of priests, uh, you know, do not engage in sex with minors. But you have, you know, depending on who you believe, between 5 and 20 percent of priests who at some point have actively engaged in sexual relationships with minors. And you know what? That's wrong. And the problem is for the ch- for the church hierarchy is to fix that problem. You have to you have to honestly approach the issue of celibacy and just acknowledge that it does not work. And for whatever reason, um, the uh, the Catholic hierarchy, the Pope, and the bishops are absolutely unwilling to entertain that discussion. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, celibacy is not uh, it's a development from the fourth century. It's not. It was unheard of in the, you know during Christ's life and during the uh, 400 years after he died. Um, it's a, it's an invention that is largely uh, was largely economically motivated, having to do with uh, with the children of priests right, and bishops not wanting to have inheritance, right? <laughs> and what's interesting is you uh, Patrick Wall of our office uh, co-wrote a book called Sex, Priests, and Secret Codes. And they tracked the history of legislation involving the molestation of children in the Catholic Church. And the fir- you see the first legislation dealing with this issue within 30 years of celibacy being enacted. And then each century thereafter, you see about three attempts by the Church to deal with something. So, you, you know, the old, there's the old saying, there's nothing new under the sun. And it's true. I mean, this is not a uh, 20th century problem or a problem with homosexuality. This is not a problem of gay priests. That is a myth. It has nothing to do with homosexuality. Uh, it is a problem of celibacy in, right. in, in the celibate system. So I, I wonder if there will be, uh, as a cause, as a backlash of this, if there will be a kind of a motivation by mainstream people to allow priests to marry and have relationships. 
Well, I think in the in the first world, in the in in the West, in in, the, in Europe, the Catholic Church is basically dead. I mean, there's a bunch of empty cathedrals, and but in terms of, and you know, certainly in Italy there are churches, but it's it's really more cultural. Um, and in 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 the United States, it's dying. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying the Catholic Church is going to cease to exist, but in terms of, you know, the the type of influence it had in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, it's a different church. And regrettably, I think what the Catholic hierarchy has concluded is that they're going to they're going to let that go, and it's going to be a church where um, they are the only place you, place you see the church growing is in immigrant populations, and the place that's growing fastest is Africa. Why do you think that is? Um, I I think it's a uh, you know that those are places and people that are in desperate need. They are the poorest of the poor, and and they have no voice. And um, that is the perfect place for these people to do what they want to do. And also, those are cultures, to some extent, where women are not as empowered as they are in the West. And that is a big problem for the Church. And people are more vulnerable there, too. It, they are. Yeah. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's, no, there's no civil justice system or criminal justice system in, in, in within those populations is going to allow people to come forward. And one of the things that's really that we're finding is in those populations, in, in immigrant populations, in Native American populations, um, those are the populations where you find the hierarchy had a policy and practice of dumping priests. In fact, uh, we have, in Alaska, we have oh, almost 150 cases where all but one are Native Alaskan people who were abused by Jesuits. And what the Jesuits were doing is if a priest offended in the lower 48, they simply shipped him up to western Alaska in a village of 500 people, and they went on to abuse there. Oh, gosh. But um, that's what you find. So you're doing these cases all over the country, huh? I am, yeah. I wish I wasn't, but I am. Well... You're doing great work. We, oh, we sure you. appreciate that. We're speaking with John Manley, who is an attorney right here in Newport Beach, California, with Manley, McGuire, and Stewart. And he has been really the uh, the great hope for many sexual abuse victims from the Catholic Church and probably other churches that uh, deal with this kind of issue of, of the celibacy craziness. Um I wanted to get back to the how I first found you and talk about this this privacy issue that was argued. Um, this article that I that I had read was basically dealing with uh, the Los Angeles Superior Court, and it was regarding the privacy objections of the Santa Barbara Fran, uh, Franciscan Order. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about what that what happened with that settlement and what what the the issues were. Yeah, well, the the case of the Santa Barbara. Um, the Santa Barbara Franciscans are probably should be pretty well known to even people that aren't Catholic. They uh, wear brown robes, and the Franciscan Order, uh, largely with Junipero Serra, is the order that um, basically built the California missions we all learned about in fourth grade. Right. And um, the the province is simply a, it's a, simply a geographical area. So the Santa Barbara province is the province that runs basically Southern California from Santa Barbara South. I see. And they actually have priests in other states. Hmm. And 
the they had a several problems, the most notable of which is they had a preparatory school in Santa Barbara called St. Anthony's Seminary, and it was a minor seminary, and in Catholic terminology that simply means a high school seminary. It was a boarding school. And so... Um, Even easier, huh? Yeah. You know, well, what you had happen is is that there were dozens and dozens of boys that were abused there, um, ravaged. And uh, in 1997 or 98, there was an independent commission that investigated this and concluded that um, not only did it happen, but the province wasn't doing enough to uh, to solve this problem. And some people came forward at that point, but when the, uh, the California legislature reopened the statute of limitations, you had many people come forward and make claims that this had happened to them there and at other places. And uh, so the cases, from a monetary standpoint, settled for $25 million. We had several, I don't remember how many we had, five or six of those cases, maybe less. Um, But one of the things that we all thought, the lawyers for the victims and the victims thought that was very important, is the documents need to come out. And so the... So that was part of the settlement agreement, not only the monetary section, but that that all of the documents must be disclosed, right? right? But the perpetrator priests, uh, just you know, all objected. Those who were still alive to their personnel files from being released on privacy grounds. So, and frankly, I mean, a lot of us believe that that was just a ruse for the province because the province didn't want it to come out either. To be quite frank, oh, of course. But in any event, what Judge Lickman was assigned to do is engage in this balancing test where you balance the privacy interest against the um, public disclosure. And basically what he concluded is, look, there, there is no greater state interest or no greater compelling interest than the protection of children. And therefore, um, I find that uh, in the interest of protecting children, I'm going to make these documents public so this never happens again. And that's what he did. And that issue was on appeal. And the Santa Barbara province had these uh, very high-priced uh, defense lawyers uh, uh, come in and, and make all sorts of arguments about legislative intent and uh, privacy and the First Amendment and all sorts of other crap. Um, that was, And the, the thing that really concerns me about these arguments is that they take legitimate privacy arguments and they turn them on their head. And what they do by arguing this kind of stuff, that somehow child molesters and their conduct should be protected, <laughs> is they endanger everybody else's real privacy rights that are in, in jeopardy. Right. Um, but that's what they did. And that case is currently on appeal. But I wrote, you're right, I wrote that op-ed in the Daily Journal about it. And I praised Judge Lickman, and I just said, you know, this is even a close call. And if you have a civilized society, that a measure of it is how do you protect the, le- the most vulnerable in your society, which is kids. And to be blunt, I mean, our justice system has not done a very good job in, in, over the past 50 years in doing that. And it's time we as lawyers change that. And I think that Lickman uh, should be commended for having the courage to step up and say, you're right, we're going to do that. So these are the questions that, that were asked, and, and these are the ones that are in appeal. And I'll, I'll just read them because I've got the, the uh, thank you so much for sending me the decision. It says, does the compelling state interest of California in protecting children from sexual predators yield to the rights of privacy once the litigation has concluded by way of another favored public policy which promotes settlement. You know, so they're trying to say, now that we've settled, why can't we keep it confidential? That's right. something that always 
drives me crazy when, and you know, as a mediator myself, and I do a lot of mediation, one of the things that um, the, you know, the company that maybe did something horrible to some, you know, sexual harassment or something always wants to keep everything under the covers, you know, yeah, well, keep it confidential. And in this case, you know, I mean, it is always a real problem when things don't get told, right? Yeah. No, I mean, that is how this was kept secret for so long that the if you talk to um, you know lawyers who were doing these cases 20 years ago you couldn't settle a case with the church without a, a confidentiality, confidentiality agreement exactly and so that's how they were able to keep a lid on it and you know one of the things that it's very very important for a survivor of sexual abuse to know is they are not the only one and what i would tell people out there that I, that are listening in your audience who may be the victim of a priest or a family member or any other type of sexual abuse is let me assure you, you are not the only victim. You are not alone. Right. Um, th- these people almost never have one victim. But if you have confidentiality agreements every time you settle, th- the survivors will never know that the other exists. And right. that's how somebody like Oliver O'Grady or Michael Harris or Yulateria Ramos uh, from the Diocese of Orange and others were able to get away with molesting children for literally decades. Right. Um, because it was all kept under the covers. Right. Oh, my gosh. So um, another question is before the court is based, is, uh, this one, based on the admissions provided by the former priest and in one instance an actual conviction, has the expectation of the right to privacy been waived or lessened so as to permit dissemination of the material sought? So the, the the question then that question is that also on appeal that that question is I, my understanding is they appealed everything oh they um, did all of them so uh, basically their their argument there is you know, the argument there is well you pled guilty you admitted it there is no privacy concern I mean right. you're an admitted child molester what what's private right um, you know do you, if you admit you're a molester does that mean you get to keep the details of your abuse secret I don't think so right. Right. So in terms of, uh, did you ever get it, because it's on appeal, you never got uh, all of the these records? or did Not you get from the Franciscans, but we've obtained them from the Diocese of Orange, the Archdiocese of L.A., and other dioceses. So when you orders. settled with them, they did not, they did not uh, fight you? No, they did. Oh, uh, they did. But their privacy, rule, their privacy objections were overruled, and they, they chose not to appeal. And, and in fairness, oh. the Diocese of Orange, again, it was the, it was the individual perpetrators who objected. Um, but, By that time, the Diocese of Orange was just saying, okay, you can have it. You well, the, it's a fine line. My personal belief is, based on my dealings with them, is they didn't want any of it to come out, but they used, they can't do much about dead personnel, but they used um, they used uh, the perpetrator's lawyers as kind of a shell for themselves. Right. In other words, they didn't have to assert the, pri- the, the privacy objection the perpetrator could, and, you know, they... It, they tried to make themselves look look good by not doing it, but the bottom line is, the documents came out, and the documents are horrifying. I mean, it shows that uh, you know, you had um, in, in two, as of two thousand and two, you had John Lenahan and St. Edwards in Dana Point, who had who they knew had molested at least one child. And when I asked Bishop McFarland about it in his deposition in the De Maria case, I said, "Why do you have John Lenahan there? He's a molester." And he said, well, you know, he was, the girl was 15. I don't think of him as a molester or worse to that effect. It's wrong what he did, but the girl was 15, fully developed and precocious. Oh. That's what he said. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, if basically, let me put that in plain English. If you have big boobs 
and you know you have some sense of sexuality as a young girl, you're fair game. <laughs> and honestly, that is the that is that was and is, in my opinion, the attitude at Marywood, which is the diocesan headquarters in Orange. Uh, and we had the same thing in the in the three cases or four cases just settled. I mean, I heard over and over again from their lawyers about consent. You know, guess what? In California, fifteen and sixteen year olds can't consent. Exactly. Um, you know, and if you've ever been around fifteen or sixteen year old girls, and I have two high school girls, and I'm very proud of. Um, there's a lot of things they don't know or understand, and they're easily swayed. Um, and that's why the law protects them. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but in, in... Look at the Heidel case. I mean, we've already seen this. You well, know, this, is the, this is exactly what we dealt with. And it, it was it was Heidel 2. It were Heidel 3, I should say. Yeah. Um, the It was the girls are sluts, they're whores, they wanted it. Uh, and, it, and I call it the she wanted it defense, you know. Oh my and God. even though they can't assert it, they they still make the argument. They make it to judges, and I got to tell you, there are judges out there. Not many. But the judges we had in our case, uh, you know, uh, were just unbelievable. But there are judges out there who 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 accept this and think that uh, that uh, that um, that this is a, this is not really sex. It's not really um, it's not really uh, uh, it's not really molestation. They're teenagers, and, and it, you know, the test is not whether you have breasts. The test is whether you're 18. And you know what? If if the child is not 18, stay the hell away from them. Go for somebody your own age. I mean, the, and the, you're priests. You're not supposed to be doing that anyway. <laughs> a lot of us think that's the eighth sacrament, but I think that's from doing this too much. <laughs> oh God. Then, you know, I, I really enjoyed the, reading this decision, and he talks about the right of privacy and, you know, the compelling state interest. Talk a little about that to us. Well, about, about the interest? I mean, yeah, you, about the privacy rights of individuals, you know, and what, you know, what kind of reasonable, you know, is there a reasonable expectation of privacy if you're going to molest somebody? Well, here, what that really <laughs> arises out of is the employment relationship with your employer, and I think everybody would right. want their employment file to be private. Right. Not, you know, simply unless you put, you know, your employment, unless you filed in a suit against your employer or you've got some employment-related issue or you're seeking, you're seeking uh, you know, future economic losses or something, you, your, your employment records are sacrosanct. Um, however, if in Not the if course... you're committing a crime. But, right. But the exception, <laughs> I don't think, you know, Jess Unruh or anybody else that crafted the Unruh Act... Uh, intended that to shield people engaged in criminal conduct. If John Gotti is working at a bank and is uh, is siphoning off money from uh, from the till, his employment file is fair game. Likewise, if Father Jim is, you know, is, is anally raping little boys in, in the course of his employment as a priest, Father Jim's file is fair game. And I think to most right-thinking people, that's just common sense. But to the Bishop Brown and to Cardinal Mahoney and to others, um, they don't see it that way. Uh, they think a priest has a special relationship with his bishop, and they don't think that those files should be uh, should be public. And you know, that's frankly that's intellectually dishonest. It's wrong-headed and it's dangerous. And for a faith-based institution that, frankly, is the largest owner of private schools in the world to take that position is not only dangerous but scary. Yeah. 
I mean, that's what they always talk about is that people who are, uh, you know, child predators go and, and they're going to go to a place that it's easy to do all their, sure. you know, all their Well, there's, there's no better things. place for a child predator than a little league game, right. an elementary school, a high school. Be a coach. Be a coach. I mean, that's where you find them. Be a teacher. Them. Exactly. And the problem is, is that, let me tell you, the vast majority, 99.9% of people who teach, who coach, who do all these things are good people, dedicated to their kids. They're there for the right reasons. They're not there for the money because they don't make enough. Right. And and what happens is by doing this, by 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 taking these positions, those people sully all the good people in the Catholic schools, all the good people in the public schools who are engaged in one of the most honorable professions out there. And th- what what you see is is the Catholic hierarchy. And you know there are only 195 diocesan, there are only 195 dioceses in the whole country. And basically, you know, there there are you know probably two or three hundred bishops in the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops who are making the rules for everybody else. And bottom line is they're screwing up. And they are single-handedly destroying this institution. They are killing it. And they are discrediting it. It has no moral authority left because of this scandal. I mean, how now, do were you... there some priests who came out, you know, I didn't follow this that closely to know, but were there some priests who came out and actually came to you and said, we knew about this, and we were uh, complaining about it, and nobody did anything. Did anybody come out and really go against the church? Any of the priests come out? No. Nobody? Not one. And they had to know. They had to know. Oh, of course they knew. They, the, 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 I can count on, on one hand the number of priests, and I'm pleased to say one of them works for me, who, who have left the institution or come forward from the institution and said, this is wrong. It happened. It, it's happened. I've seen it, and we got to do something. I mean, one of the great heroes of this is a, a man named Father Thomas Doyle. Tom Doyle is a Dominican priest. He worked at the Vatican Embassy in Washington, and but for his his courage on this issue, he'd probably be a bishop today. Um, he wrote a paper in 1985 uh, saying this is going to cost the church a billion dollars. We've got to admit it. We got to embrace the victims. We got to do the right thing. We got to put an end to this. And basically, as a result of that, he his career path stopped. He became an Air Force chaplain. He's a combat veteran of three wars, including this last Gulf War. Um, and in the 19th year of his time as a, he was a uh, lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, um, the, uh, the bishop of the military vicariate, which is the Catholic body that gives Catholic chaplain uh, what are called faculties or permission to minister, they pulled his faculties because they said he made some talk about limbo. The bishop of the military vicariate basically made some lame excuse to get rid of him about you know some talk he gave about purgatory or limbo, and they basically denied him his pension. Mm. Um, and the reality is is that if you are a priest in this system, all of them know that if they come forward and they speak, uh, they speak out and they speak in favor of kids, they get run over. And what's really disconcerting to me is that none of these guys have the courage to speak out. None of them. Um, there's only one priest in this diocese, he's even spoken from the pulpit, and I won't say who it is because I'll hurt him, yeah. about how wrong this bishop is. Um, but oh, they stay dear. in the system. And, uh, you know, that, to me, you know, it, 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 it's like... Uh, well, if you speak out, you have to leave. Well, it, you know, honestly, to me, when you know this is happening, if you stay... 
it's equivalent to um, you know being a train engineer and you love your job, but you just happen to have to transfer prisoners to uh, to Auschwitz, yeah. and you don't really like it, but you know it's important. You got to feed your family, and what are you going to do? Right. You, you know, you, you can't you, you can't do it. You can't yeah. stay. You got to leave. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, I was a Catholic my whole life, and I've left. I can't stay. And because you know, they're because they're hypocrites. Well, because what they're doing is evil. They're right. I mean, what they're doing is evil, and that, you know, how can you have faith in, in this organization? That doesn't mean that you lose your faith in God. No. But, but, you know, how could you have faith in some kind of organization that, that doesn't walk its talk? Well, for me, it was much more practical. It's that I was never going to expose my children to an environment that's not safe. And oh, people can laugh not. and say what they like. It's not safe. No. Oh, gosh. You know, I have to tell you, years ago, um, I was a, um, a teacher and an administrator, okay? I was in the educational system, and I happened to have met a friend um, who had been a nun, mm-hmm. okay? And she went in to the convent very, very young, and she was molested by the other nuns and finally left. Yeah, that's not uncommon. Yeah. Do you deal with any of that? We've seen that, um I've got, there has been, so there were several cases in Orange County that, that dealt with, with nun abuse. Um, the, frequently, um, what you find in some of these orders, it depend it largely depends on which one there is. Um, the, the nuns are frequently preyed upon um, themselves, and if you get in the wrong order, you have postulants, which is, basically somebody who hasn't taken final vows being preyed upon it, it yes. it's not uncommon and it it's you know when i was uh, young uh, you know i we had my dad was was protestant and um uh, you would see protestant propaganda put out about the catholic church about the priests having tunnels to the nuns and all this stuff and the reality the, the sad reality is is while that stuff largely was just hate material some of it's true. Yes. Uh, and um, it's it's really, really uh, sad. Really sad. Yeah, I remember her telling me, and I was in such shock, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and so that's when she said, I had to leave. I had to get out. And she didn't, you know, and, and she told me. I mean, they were abusing all the young, the young nuns. But, yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a system where, in some instances, they have been literally allowed to eat their young, and that—that that is, uh, it, it's sick. It's just sick. Right, right. We're talking with John Manley, who is an attorney right here in Newport Beach, with the law firm of Manley, McGuire, and Stewart, and he's become very famous, and he's been really um, a knight in shining armor for so many sexual abuse victims in the Catholic Church. So we're going to continue on here. And, you know, how difficult is it, you know, to be in a law firm when you're doing so much of this? How, how, challenge, how challenging is it emotionally for you, the attorneys in your firm and you and your support staff prosecuting these cases? Well, it's hard. I mean, it, it's hard because, uh, for well, for two reasons. Number one is is that usually there is no collegiality in these cases. It is a knock down, drag out, street fight, um, where the, the other side will use every dirty trick in the book, um, and it's just ugly. The second thing is, is that, you know, as much as you want to help survivors, um, 
the reality is is that dealing with survivors is very very difficult. I mean, you you have a continuum of damage from these people, and you re- you we've represented people that are homeless all the way up to, you know, senior executive physicians, doctors, um, policemen, firemen, and they come to you with uh, everyone is different, um, but you have to listen to the, the trauma to, to do the case. I mean, you have to intake the, the person, and you have to listen to what happened. And some of these things that, I mean, when, when I used to think of molestation, I would think of fondling or something that was, you know, sort of ephemeral and innocuous. And, and in most instances, that's not what happened. It's grotesque, violent rape in many mm. instances. I have a case in Orange County where there was a prostitute, a donkey, and a priest and a boy involved. Oh, I mean, my gosh. Uh, no, and I, 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 I couldn't make this stuff up. Yeah. Um, it is, um, some of it, a lot of it occurs, starts in confession. Um, it is. Oh, they go to confession and then, then the priest... Yeah, what what happens is, and the church has a word for it. It's called solicitation in the confessional. And what happens is the priest yeah. uses the confessional to access the family system. Priest will say to the child, uh, you know, the child will typically confess masturbation. The priest will say that's very very serious. We need to talk about this outside of confession, which in the system, by the way, is absolutely forbidden. Right, right. I mean, you're going and, there. That's supposed to be anonymous, right? Well, it, <laughs> up until '78, it was anonymous. You can do it face to face now. Oh, but uh, which is an interesting discussion. But uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I thought that's the. I mean, when I went to high school with all my Catholic friends, they could do all these crazy things on the weekend and then go on Sunday and confess and then start over and be clean. That's what they thought. You know? well, it's <laughs> they a great gig if you can get it. <laughs> um, but what, what happens is the priest misused the sacrament of confession um, and, uh, and access the child sexually. And they, they basically use manipulation. Um, they, you know, you have to remember a lot of these kids, especially Catholic kids, um, you know, at 12 or 13 are completely naive sexually because in the, in, you know, when I was growing up, nobody really talked about it. I mean, you didn't really know what sexuality was or sex was other than you weren't supposed to do it. Right, right. And, um, you know, we were all taught in school that masturbation was a mortal sin. Right. And, um, you know, and a mortal sin means it's a sin equivalent to taking a life. And so the whole topic of sex was something surrounded in guilt and, and, uh, and mystery. And so, of course, it's something that, you know, the child doesn't have a lot of information about, and you know, father uses this this thing. It's supposed to be this beautiful sacrament to to access the, the child sexually, mm. and you know, because we're on radio, I can't get into what they say, but it's some of the most despicable things you will ever hear. And the child finds themselves in a relationship with somebody who they trust and they care about. And the problem with with, with sexual abuse, and this is hard to say. You know, the, the the sexual function itself feels good, and and children feel that they feel, you know, they they orgasm, they they do these things, and so the child has this thing in inside them that tells them for their whole life, I didn't like it, but it felt good, and I care about this person, and there's this tremendous cycle of confusion right, that right. surrounds that, and when you as you grow up, you you have these traumatic memories which impact you. And you grow up in a situation where you don't trust anyone, anyone, right. that, and you don't, you you cannot have 
the level of intimacy, sexual or otherwise, that everybody else has. I mean, imagine in growing up in an environment and then becoming a young adult, and a, an adult, young adult and an adult, where every sexual act, thought, or deed you engage in, whether you're a man or a woman, is clouded by uh, you know some 70-year-old fat priest. Yes. And that's what a lot of these folks live with. And, you know... Yeah, it's got to impact you guys in the office there. It's, yeah. yeah, and so you, 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 you have people that come to you, and frequently, I mean, I've had people vomit in my office. Mm. Uh, they, they, you know, I've had grown men who are firefighters who were at Ground Zero on the day after 9-11 you know, cry in my lawyer and lawyers in my office's arms. I, I, I mean, uh, it is it is horrible. But at the same time, I have to tell you, it's a great honor for to be able to do that work and have people trust you. Right. And as a lawyer, and, and I, they and they probably couldn't trust anybody till you. And, well, and, and, the and fact they don't even they... really trust us. It's something right. you just have to earn. Right. Uh, and it comes with the territory. But I have to tell you that a lot of our folks, including me, are in therapy. Because you can't you can't do this work without that. Right. You just it's too, you know you you can you can take in too much, and we try and watch out for one another. When you can see it, when somebody's taken in too much, and you just have to say, look, you need to take a break. You know, I I hear from victims for years now, from victims of identity theft, and you know, ever since back in 1996 when I was a victim, and I, in fact, the name of my book, one of my books, is from victim to victor, because I would imagine you do. And yours is obviously even much worse, although people come to me in, in trauma as well. But yours... Well, it's both involve a loss of control, that's Right, sure. it's a loss of control, and it's a violation, but yours is, is a bodily violation, mm-hmm. which is far worse, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you're... By you helping them, you are empowering them to... Yes, they were victimized, but they don't have to stay a victim. Right. And the first thing that we tell people when they come in the door, this is not a secret, is, A, or I'm really, truly sorry this happened to you. And frequently, they've never heard that before. And the second is, we just want you to know that before we say a word, this was not your fault. Right. This was not your fault. And, you know, the reason we say that is the one thing that survivors all have in common is shame. Yeah. Because they feel something that they did that brought it on. You well, know, it, it, they were too voluptuous or, or too cute or something, huh? I, to this day, I don't understand the psychological dynamic. Some of no. it's imposed uh, by the perpetrator themselves. Right. But it's... Like, it, you it, made me do this to you. <laughs> well, effectively. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the churches had members of the hierarchy that, that said that. I mean, that the children, <sighs> that children can seduce, it's well known, you know. <sighs> And um, you know it's uh, uh, it's just. It, but anyway, the, the, getting back to the point, it's it's you know it's it's very hard. But I'm not complaining. It's it's a great. It's very rewarding. But it, at times, it's hard. But one thing I, I, I question is: Is there an opportunity because you see all these people to help them get? To, do they start support groups from your office? You know, there is a support group out there that a lot of our clients are involved in called the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, SNAP. Oh, I'll bet there's something on the Internet for those uh, people. Yeah, and if you just search SNAP under Google, their site will come up. And I would encourage anybody that's been abused, whether by clergy or otherwise, if you're wondering who to call, call them. Um, they can yeah, because they, that's what they work on. I mean, you as the attorney, you can hear them and you have to hear the facts, but you can't be their counselor. Yeah, it, no. 
I, no. and we don't we don't yeah. we have a whole network of folks we we send people to and work right. with but that's yeah. work they need to do themselves right and, but that that's a great resource for folks good tell me something what kind of if if you could propose legislation what kind of legislation is needed to protect prevent you know potential victims of this kind of abuse is well number one is there should not be a uh there should be a, uh, a very limited statute of limitations. In other words, um, people should be able to to file a lawsuit within three or four years of when they make the connection between their sexual abuse and their injury. And in California, at this point, that that is uh, that matters on appeal. Uh, secondly, there shouldn't be a criminal statute of limitations for this at all. Right. Um, and uh, and. That, what is the criminal statute of limitations on this right now? Uh, it's basically, it's complicated, but essentially it's now it's one year from the date you report first report to law enforcement. Oh, and, gosh. And it's 10 years from, it, it's complex, yeah, and I'm not yeah. a criminal prosecutor. Okay, but yeah. It is, um, it is next to impossible to, to get, uh, you know, fortunately we have some good people in the DA's office, Roseanne Froberg, who's the head of the uh, sex crimes unit, uh, Mike Fell, who's an excellent prosecutor oh, yeah, in that unit, right. mm-hmm. who have filed some of these cases. But, um, for example, it, it, we have several cases pending where, where our clients have been abused with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and it's impossible to get them to do anything. They have zero interest. Now, in fact, we've had several instances with the Sheriff's Department where they've actually moved. We've actually had police departments when the Sheriff's Department wouldn't prosecute uh that, that'll pick it up because one instance of abuse happened. In fact, but God bless them, the Costa Mesa Police Department really recently did that in a case. Um, you know, the Santa Ana Police Department's never fought, never filed a criminal charge despite all the abuses that have happened in modern day. You got me. And, and they've got they've got the statutes on file that they can use, yeah. right? Yeah, but you know, it's it's you know, this, the church still has a lot of political power. There are a lot of people in this county and other places who don't want to prosecute the church. And you know what? I don't give a, a darn... I was going to say damn, but I probably not shouldn't yeah, say that. Yeah, right. Um, it's okay. I, I it's not one of the seven dirty words, so it's okay. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll listen to my George Carlin after the interview. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if somebody violates a child and you can prove yeah. it, you ought to prosecute them. And there, there is this this reticence by law enforcement, and I'm excluding the Orange County District Attorney's Office because they've done everything they can uh, to do this and to be. To be so they won't a, even take a police report, or they'll take the report and they won't do anything. You know they, what they'll say is is that uh, well, you know, it's uh, uh, I don't know, and you know, these cases are hard to prove. It's he said, she said, you know, and and I've got like I said, I have one case uh, involving uh, Starbucks where. Um, I've got a I've got a cell phone where the the perpetrator and the client was 15. He's 20 something. Uh, is uh, sending uh, text messages on the phone, which we have, saying "wanna f," and he's he's not saying "f." He's saying the whole yeah, word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know the the sheriff's department won't prosecute it, and uh, they won't refer it to the DA. They won't do anything. And you know that's it, not okay. It's no, it's not. not okay. And and you know what? It, until Law enforcement gets serious about protecting our kids. This is going to continue to happen. Well, that's when you talk to the media. You no. know, you, I mean, you have. Well, a I'm lot here. Of, I know you're you're starting here, and you're talking to the right person. That's that's good. Lloyd says we just have a few minutes, but what what are the um, 
What do you think the tr- the next trend will be in litigation? Well, I you know I, it's interesting. There there's a couple of uh, a couple of things. Number one is is these cases against the Catholic Church are not going away. We you know we have um, a case out of Chicago where um, and the priest actually molested here in Orange County as well, mm-hmm. where the last instance of abuse that we know of is 2003, mm-hmm. um, and you know we continue to uh, get calls about modern day and other places and and so these cases are not going away so the the notion that this is almost over is uh, or this is a past issue it's it's not going to go away secondly what i i think we think the next um, one of the next big areas uh, involving sexual abuse is the sexual abuse of teenage workers um, like i said we have a case we filed against starbucks uh... and other companies that use teenage workers, it is shockingly uh, common to have 20-something and 30-something-year-old employees engaging in intercourse and other types of sexual abuse with female workers um, on the job. And so we think that is going to continue to be an area that it, where um, uh, these folks need protection and they're not giving it. It's an area that's misunderstood by employers. And it's an area misunderstood by uh, by law enforcement. So we think that's going to be a developing area. And then the whole issue of sexual uh, uh, misconduct in the workplace. I don't like to use sexual harassment because it, you know, there there have been so many. You know, uh, I'm not talking about somebody that brings a Playboy into an environment. I'm so, I'm talking about some uh, a situation groping and groping and you know we have a case against a law firm here in Orange County uh, called called Miles Bauer and Bergstrom. It's a reported. Uh, decision where um, uh, the allegation is, and I stress it's an allegation, is that the the firm was uh, using uh, uh, essentially a Playboy model to uh, sleep with uh, clients uh, in order to get, and the clients were subprime mortgage companies, mm-hmm. in order to get uh, uh, business, and. Um, that the senior partner was engaging in what amounted to sexual assault on victims. And I stress again, just for purposes of an allegation, it's yes. an allegation. Right, right. Um, but, uh, you know, th- this is unbelievably common uh, where you have young women in an office environment, many of them are single moms. And, and young you, men, you know. What's that? I said, and young men. I've and young I, men yes. who are, who are, uh, who are abused. The other one that's Again, huge, the vulnerable. It gets back to that well, whole issue of the vulnerable, right? Yeah, and the other thing in the Oprah, the Oprah, uh, school case is an example of it, of, of teachers engaging in sexual misconduct with students. And I, I wish everyone would be as, uh, as kind of open and forthright as she's been. Uh, basically saying we're going to clean house, we're going to do this, and then act on it. I mean, if you want a, a textbook example about a handle, how to handle something, look at that case. Um, you know, she acknowledged it, she apologized, she's going to clean house, uh, and um, you know, she is cleaning house. And you know, if you were, a, if you're an institution that has this issue come up, that's how you do it. But so frequently, it, it doesn't happen. So. Well, John, Lloyd is telling us that it's time to go. I just want you to give us your website so people can go and learn more, and you've been just terrific. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, the, the website is www.manlymcguire.com. 
And yeah. we will we will be following all your great work, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay, you keep it up the good work. Thank you very much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Please join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. Visit our website to see our past and future guests and download podcasts and listen to the archived interviews, www.KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.